chapter 28, Acts, uh, verses 12 through 31. After we put into Syracuse, we, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and, and arrived at Regium. And after a day when a south wind sprang up, on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found some brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. And, and the brothers, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Appius and, and three inns to meet us. When, when Paul saw them, he, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And it happened that after three days, Paul called together those who were, who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I, don't, though I had done nothing against our people or the, the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they were, they were willing to release me because there, were, there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, well, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any any of the brothers come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you? Well, we desire to hear from what you think. From, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it, that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in, in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from, from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. And when they, when they disagreed with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have, they have closed their eyes, lest they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles. They will also hear. Verse 30, And, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all confidence unhindered. The question we will be asking this morning and answering is, who here is willing to go to Rome with the Apostle Paul? By the grace of God, we're in our, our last passage of Acts. We began our study in Acts about a year ago, and my hope is that our, our time spent in this book would, would merely serve as the beginning of a, a lifetime of, of study of Acts on your own, over the course of the year, we, we, we learn that the, the book of Acts is about the Lord Jesus Christ, it is about the church, it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and we learn that when Jesus ascended into, into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he, he returned to earth in Acts 2 by, by way of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. The, the life of Jesus that we read about in, in the gospel of Luke uh, continues in Luke's history of the early church in the book of Acts. 
when we read the Gospels, we're, we're reading about Jesus Christ, the head of the church, dying to save sinners on the cross. And, and when we read uh, the book of Acts, we're reading about the body of Jesus Christ saving sinners through the preaching of the cross. There's kind of a part one and a part two. In the book of Acts, the, uh, Luke, the author, highlighted four main qualities of the church. The church first is a witness of Christ. The church is first a, a, a witness of Christ. The church's central identity isn't political, nor is it social. Instead, we proclaim Christ, and we show the world by our love for one another what life is like in his kingdom. The whole world must hear the gospel, and, and then they must see a, a micro-civilization. They must see a mini-society a mini of individual individuals who would, who would never know each other or who would never care for each other under normal circumstances, now united in love and service and, and worship. We, we preach the gospel, and our, and our corporate life as a local church bears compelling testimony of the power of the gospel. The church is a witness of Christ, and, and Luke has told us that, number two, the church has the greatest authority as a human institution. The church has the greatest authority as a human institution. Throughout Acts, there was an ongoing contest between the religious leaders of Jerusalem and, and the newly formed church about just who is in charge here, who has been God-given authority. And, and the church claimed that, that Jesus Christ is the, is the, is the ultimate authority, and the, and the Judaizers vehemently opposed that claim. Over and over, the, the church does things or, or says things in the name of Christ or in the power and authority of Christ. And that, that signifies that the church is the, only, is the only human institution that bears the name of Christ in all that she does and in all that she, she is. For that, for that reason, the church mediates Christ's authority as she declares the gospel. As we faithfully submit to Christ's commands, we exercise an influence, we exercise a, a, an influence and power that is far greater than any corporation or political institution. And that means there is no, uh, there is no human institution uh, that has more glory than the church because the church has more authority than any other institution in the in the world, as it mediates the authority of Christ through the gospel. And so these, these first two big qualities of the church, the witness of the church, and the authority of the church, were featured in chapters 1 through 8. The third quality of the church that we expounded upon this past year in Acts chapter 9 through 20, uh, we, we found in these 12 chapters that the church takes the gospel to the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, number, number, number three, the church is a global institution. The church is a global institution. There is no human institution that is more truly diverse and truly united at the same time than the church. Philip evangelizes to someone from Africa as the Ethiopian eunuch asked to be baptized. In chapter 10, a Roman soldier named Cornelius and his family, they joined the church. And then in chapter 13, Paul begins the first of three missionary journeys establishing churches across the Roman Empire. And by the time the book of Acts closes, it is clear that after 30 years from, from Acts 2 to the end of the Acts, that the church has become a multinational global institution. Disney has nothing on us. Pepsi, Coca-Cola, uh, uh, McDonald's has nothing on the global impact 
of the church. Well, after Paul's third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul returns to Jerusalem. Despite being warned about persecution and even death, Paul loves Israel with all of his heart. But once he gets gets to Jerusalem, Paul is accused of sedition, and because of that, he needs to appeal to Caesar. But throughout the trials and, and tribunals documented in Acts 21 through 28, we saw that the Apostle Paul, he continually, continuously sought the good of his enemies. And it's in this last third of the book we are pre- presented with the fourth and final quality of the church. The church is a noble institution. The church is a noble institution. As Paul proclaims gospel, the salvation of the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, he shows no bitterness. He doesn't try to escape his hardship. And through it all, Paul's gospel never changes. His his message always stays the same because Paul is a man of of character. Paul is a man of integrity. And and God sends Paul to Rome on this Odyssean-like sea journey to show him to be a man of righteousness. Paul is not a criminal, even though he's in chains. He is on the side of justice because he stands for the gospel, which is a message that justifies the unrighteous. The gospel puts Paul on the right side of history. And that is is always true of the church. Christians today will be accused of division and hate speech and insurrection simply for proclaiming the most noble, most righteous, the most just message the world has ever known. And we will continue to proclaim it in and through opposition for the sake of its integrity and for the good of others, even though they stand against us. And so it's in this very last section of the book of Acts that we will be considering this morning God has one last word to tell us. And it's this. He wins. He wins. If you remember, opposition to the church and the gospel began in chapter 4 of Acts. In chapter 4, verse 18, the leaders of, of Israel commanded Peter and John to, quote, not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You guys, you Christians, you can do anything you want, but don't mention the gospel, don't talk about Christ. And from that point on until chapter 28, all we have seen chapter after chapter is hostile resistance to the church's proclamation of the gospel. And no matter what Israel does, no matter what the Gentiles do to the church, the the gospel continues to spread throughout the world unabated and unhindered. And and yes, the book of Acts, as it records the early history of the church, yes, it teaches us how to prepare for persecution, but we must never forget that persecution is not the same thing as defeat. Persecution is not the same thing as losing. Yes, we may suffer for the gospel, but make no mistake about it, the church will not lose. And there is great irony in the the church's mission. When When a church is faithfully proclaiming the gospel to the lost, the church becomes a victorious loser. When we truly live as a faithful church to the Great Commission, that's when we begin to die. It is when we are most successful in our mission that we begin to look like we have lost everything. And Paul explains this oxymoronic quality of the faithful church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as 
unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet, behold, we live, as punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful but always rejoicing, as poor but making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And so in our passage today, we will consider the triumph of the gospel as Paul arrives in Rome as a prisoner in chains. And we will ask ourselves throughout these verses, are you and I, are we willing to go to Rome with Paul? Are we willing to go to Rome with Paul? Point number one, found in verses 12 through 15, point number one is how do you encourage an apostle? How do you, how do you encourage an apostle? How would you encourage the apostle Paul? If the Apostle Paul were, were alive here today and he was in a, a similar situation as he is in the end of chapter 28, how would our lives be an encouragement to him? If we wrote him a letter and, and honestly described what our, our daily lives looked like, do you think our, our testimony would encourage him or would it be a, a source of burden? Dear Paul, Things are going great in Northern Virginia. I just got a new job with a high salary. And with that new salary, I was able to afford a brand new house in a, in a really safe neighborhood for the kids. And when you get out, out of jail, you, you really need to check out my new place. I have this 75-inch this screen TV, and uh, hopefully you can get out before the Super Bowl. I'm throwing a party at my place, and I got a grill, and we're going to cook up some steaks. And uh, yeah, I go to church, but I'm not really you know, too involved. I just come, I show up, I do what I can. I'm, I'm not really growing in my relationships with others at the church. Nobody really, really knows me. Nobody, nobody really knows my heart. I'm not really actively discipling or shepherding anybody. I'm not being discipled or, or shepherded by anyone either. I, I, I got too, too much on my plate right now, right? I have work, I have school, I just have no time. You know, I haven't shared the gospel with, with anybody in a, in a long time either because that's for you. That's for the apostles, you know? That's, that's your job. But I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And, and the church is doing everything it can to get you out of prison. What you're experiencing, experiencing is, is just totally unjust. What has happened to this country? Hopefully we can win, win the next appeal and we'll all try to send you on a, a nice vacation for all the hardships you suffered for the gospel. Does that letter sound something similar to the kind of letter you and I would write to him? I, well, I don't know about you, but for me, the answer is yes. And I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think that this letter is the kind of letter, the gist of it, is the kind of letter most believers in America would write to him. But more importantly, we have to ask, what would Paul, what would Paul think? He's in jail. What would he feel when he read that letter? Would it strengthen him? Would it, would it encourage him? Or, or would it grieve his heart? Would he shed tears for a church so in love with the American dream? Brothers and sisters, what are, what are we living for? Brothers and sisters, why are our lives filled with earthly aspirations and creaturely joys instead of being filled with Christ and a, and a willingness to take real risks to make his name known? In verses 12 through 15, as Paul makes the final leg of his journey to Rome, he, he meets fellow members of the church to encourage him, fellow members of the church who he thanks God for. Verse 12 says, after we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. He's, uh, this is uh, after about three months on the, on the island of Malta, the, the boat that Paul is in, it sets again, sets out again for Rome in, in, in verse 12. 
It's about February of 60 AD. It is the earliest time of the year a ship would resume sailing after a long winter. It's a 210-mile journey to Rome from where they were starting out. They arrive in Syracuse, verse 12 says. This is about 90 miles north of Malta. And Syracuse was the capital of Sicily during the Roman era, located at the eastern end of the south side of the island. And after three days, they sailed to Regium in first in verse 13, and that's about 70 miles from, uh, from Syracuse on the southwest coast of Italy. And finally, they, they arrived in Puteoli at the end of verse 13, and, and Puteoli was the, the major, Rome's uh, main port of entry from the east, located in, in the, the Bay of Na- Naples. It was a major port for the grain trade from Alexandria, Egypt. And so from Puteoli to Rome on foot, it would take another 130 miles. So a, so a time of rest and refreshment were, were necessary. And that's what happens in verse 14. And we, we found some brothers and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. Roman guards, instead of trying to imposing their will on some innkeeper or some a random citizen and all of the, 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 the drama that would involve, uh, they would surely accept the offer of believers saying, hey, we'll take care of the expenses. We'll take care of you. We'll, we'll give you rest before you put out on this long journey to the city of Rome. And so uh, Paul was allowed to stay with some believers for about seven days. And, and, and nonetheless, um, he, it says that, that, uh, that he, he was, he was, there was a, always a, a guard guarding him. Uh, before and after, we know that the typical situation was that even when uh, the Romans said, oh yeah, you can go here, Paul, they would be sent, that person, that prisoner would be, would be, would be sent with one guard and there would be a chain, a chain on, the, on his right hand and, a, and he would be chained to a, to a Roman guard. And so in verse 15, uh, they make their final approach to Rome after seven days of resting and they and they stop at the, verse 15, at the market of Appius. That's about 40, 43 miles south of Rome. And, and then at the three inns, that's about 33 miles from Rome. And, and this is what the second half of verse 15 says. When Paul saw them, there were believers who heard about, they, they were going there, and these believers, they went to the market of Appius, went to the three inns, the two, two, these two towns, to meet Paul and his entourage. And, and it says in verse 15, when, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. But why did he do this? What did the church say to the Apostle Paul that gave him such, such courage and such strength? And, and the verse doesn't say, but we can assume what they said and what their, their prayers were like and what their conversation was because we, we, we know what... what we know the kind of person that Paul was. We know what made him tick. We know what made him get up in the morning. And they, and they likely told Paul that they were, they were with him in spirit. They were with him in common cause. They likely said that they were engaged in the same mission of proclaiming the gospel that he was. They, they, they probably told him they, that they had more boldness to share Christ than they had before because of Paul's example. And their conversations were were related to the content of Philippians 1. Philippians was written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. It was, it was, Philippians was written during the time described here in our, in our verses, Acts chapter 28. And Paul says in Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances 
have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my, my, my chains in Christ ha, have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and, and that most of the, of the brothers having become confident in the Lord because, because of my chains, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You see, when the, when the brethren in verse 15 saw the, the courage of Paul with his right hand chained to another Roman soldier, they were given courage to imitate the example of Paul. And, and for that, Paul thanked God. For that, Paul was in turn, he was strengthened in, in his heart and in his, in his resolve to keep pushing Further and further, he thought, wow, they're, they're my, these chain, this, this chain on my right hand is doing some good. It, it's doing some good. It's, it's strengthening the church. Praise God. Thank you, God, for this. And, and Paul, he was, he was encouraged that they were encouraged. And in Philippians, Paul, in Philippians 1, Paul is saying, I, I am so encouraged that, that my imprisonment right here, I, I'm so encouraged that it, that it encouraged others to share Christ with more confidence. And that's one of the purposes of this last passage. We are, we are supposed to say to ourselves, hey, if, if Paul was, was willing to give up his freedom and his, and his comfort and his well-being, if, if Paul was willing to give up everything, even the possibility of losing his life, then surely... I can risk a little embarrassment at Starbucks sharing Christ to the person next to me. You see, if Paul can go to Rome, then surely I can, I can go to my neighbor's house and get to know him or her and, and share Christ with them when the, when the time arises. You see, if Paul can, can go to Rome in chains, then surely I can go to work. I can go to work and, and take a little risk to share Christ to my co-workers. You see, when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, God wants you and I to be more confident that we, than we are. The New Testament recognizes explicitly that we, we have a natural fear of sharing Christ. God understands that. There, there is compassion on God's part. He, he knows that we're afraid of losing earthly treasures and earthly affections in a career we worked our, our lives for. God's not like, I don't care. He, he understands that fear. He, he empathizes with that. And yet, nonetheless, he says to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of losing anything for the sake of the gospel. God says, do not be afraid to go to Rome with Paul. Do not be afraid to go to Rome with Paul. Our, our point number two, 17 through 28, Paul conquers Rome. Paul conquers Rome in these, in these verses. Paul and his entourage, uh, they get to Rome in verse 16, and, and Paul is allowed to to stay by himself. And, 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 and the city of Rome is where the Lord earlier had told him where he was going to take the gospel. Rome is the center of, of civilization. Rome, all roads lead to Rome. All roads go out to the Rome. So if you can, if you can, get, to the, if you can get the gospel to Rome, then the, then the, Rome, then the gospel can go out to the, to the ends of the earth. And this is where the Lord Jesus wanted Paul to go. And, and it's not exactly how Paul planned on visiting Rome. His his original intention was to go to Rome as a free man before moving on to Spain. In the letter to the Romans, written before he arrived in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, before he, this whole kind of chain of events began so that he arrived 
here in Romans, Acts 28, he, he wrote the, the letter to the Romans, and, and he describes his plan on visiting Rome. Go to Romans, go to Romans chapter 15, and we see Paul's original intention. And it wasn't exactly like we find him now in Acts 28. And this is what he, he says in these, these words. He didn't know he was becoming as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He didn't know for sure. But this is what he, this is what he did know. Verse 22, chapter 15, Romans. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope passing through to see you and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints, and for, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to, to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have completed this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on, my, go on by way of you to Spain. And then he says this, verse 29, And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He doesn't know if he's going to come as a free man or as a prisoner, but one thing he does know. He says that, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And at this point, you just have to say, what? What are you, what, what are you talking about? Let's go back to Acts 28. Let's, let's see the, the circumstances of Paul coming to Rome. Yes, verse 16 says he's allowed to stay by himself. He's allowed some concessions as a Roman citizen. But look at the end of verse 16. There, there's a soldier guarding him. He, he still has to be chained to a, a soldier 24-7. Soldiers would come in intervals and be chained to the, to, the, to the prisoners back then under house arrest. And yes, he's not in the worst part of prisoner, but he's still... He's, Still wearing on his right hand a cold, hard, heavy chain. And he's a prisoner in chains, listen, for, for crimes he, he did not commit. He calls together, verse 17. He says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was, I was forced to appeal to, to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. Paul says, I, I am innocent. I am, I am wearing this chain for nothing. I, I'm a, I, I've done no wrong. I'm doing no wrong. Paul, what are you talking about? This fullness of the blessing of Christ? Well, Paul is obviously not talking about material prosperity. He's not at the Ritz-Carlton. He's not getting room service. You see, Paul's joy in Rome isn't, isn't tied to his circumstances. It's not, it's not tied to the occasion. You see, the fullness of the blessing of Christ Paul has in Rome is a, is a spiritual prosperity. Because true riches are, are found in our, on our, in, our, in our spiritual condition. 
The fullness of the blessing of Christ means that there is great blessing in the, in the spiritual dimension between God and you. And this kind of deep, satisfying fullness of joy is only given to those who are willing to go to Rome with Paul. Brothers and sisters, are we willing? Are we willing to go to Rome with the Apostle Paul? Because Paul, the, the Paul is, he is leading a, a spiritual invasion against Rome. He hasn't conquered Rome. He hasn't conquered Rome. Rome has already, has already been conquered by Christ's death and resurrection. When we proclaim the gospel, yes, we want people to be saved. But even more than that, we, we're telling the world Christ has already won. The gospel is a proclamation of victory over sin and death, whether or not people believe. The gospel says Christ has already won, and, and you can be a part of the victory parade, or you can be judged when the Lord Jesus returns to claim the world as a reward for his suffering. The, the book of Acts ends in victory. It, it ends in triumph. Yes, there's the external triumph of the good news that Jesus died and rose again, but it's also a personal triumph of the heart. A personal triumph in the heart of Paul to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. To, to have a, a kind of heart, to have a kind of attitude that is willing to lose one's life for the sake of, of the gospel brings with it, as Paul said, the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Friends, happiness is not a, a new car or a, a better neighborhood. Friends, is, friends uh, happiness is is not a, a new relationship. Uh, the, the greatest kind of happiness is not even found in, in, in marriage or, or having children or, 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 or health or, or some type of success at, at, in your workplace. True happiness is defined as the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's what we want. That's what God offers every believer. Yes, Paul is in chains. Yes, from his out, outward circumstances, it appears that Paul has lost everything, but inwardly we know that his heart would, was overflowing with every spiritual fruit of the Spirit. These are the spiritual rewards waiting for anybody, anybody here willing to go to Rome with Paul. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 4-7. through 7. But in everything commending ourselves as ministers of God in much perseverance, in afflictions, in distress, in hardships, in, in beatings, in, in imprisonments, in disturbances, in, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. And we, at this point you say, what kind of life is that? I mean, who wants that? I didn't come to church for this. What are you talking about? And then Paul says this, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in unhypocritical love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Yes, yes, Paul is in prison now, but make no mistake about it, Paul is not losing. He's conquering. He is conquering. His heart is filled with the joy of the Spirit. And he's wielding the word of truth, the power of God. What, what Paul is doing in, in Rome, in, in Roman Acts 28, he is swinging with all of his strength the weapons of righteousness with his right hand, with his, with his left, 
with the fullness of hope unknown to mankind. He, he's, not, he's, not, he's not declaring this, this strength that he has. He's not saying, I want to get you. You don't know who I am. You don't know how powerful who I am. No, in humility, he's saying, guys, I didn't do anything. I don't do anything to deserve this. I love Israel. I love Israel. That's power. That's how we conquer the world for Christ. Paul says in verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I, I requested to see you. Verse 19, he said, I, don't, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Then he says, not that I had any accusation against my nation. A Roman citizen was allowed to countersue. He was allowed to countersue. So if the prosecutor didn't have a, a case, a Roman citizen was allowed to bring a countersuit against the prosecuting party. And we already know that Israel has no case. And, and Paul says in verse 19, I'm not going to countersue. I could countersue. I could countersue and destroy you, but I'm not. I'm not. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For, for I am wearing this chain. I am wearing this chain for the sake of the, the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel Paul is referring to is the hope of the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 to give him a great name. God promised Abraham to make his descendants into a great nation and to give this nation a land. And subsequent to that promise, to, to reaffirm God's commitment to the promise, God would say over and over and again in the, in the Old Testament, like he said to Moses in Exodus 6, he would say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see that often, right? You know what I'm talking about. He would say, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And, and, and what Paul's what, what God means by that, he's saying that the same, the same promise that I'm making to you, Moses, is the, is the same promise I made to Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. But this is the issue. When he says that to Moses, or people later in the Old Testament, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're dead. And before they die, they were never given a, given a great nation. Before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob die, they, they never received the land that God had promised them. So how does God keep that promise to every faithful Jew who died before receiving that promise? How does he keep his promise to Abraham? Abraham never received all the land. Jacob did it. Isaac did it. How does he keep that promise? Through a resurrection. See, the promise to the fathers demands a resurrection. And all of Israel believed in the Abrahamic promise, and so did Paul. And all of Israel knew that a, that a resurrection was necessary for the promises to be fulfilled. And, and so, to, so did Paul. That's what Isaiah 26, 19 said. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the, to the departed spirits. And Paul is in chains for this, this promise because he believed the one truth that Israel refused to believe. Paul believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the linchpin of all that Israel and Paul had prayed for. Paul's ministry, as we see here, was that every city he visited, he would preach the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's what happens here, too. He calls the leaders of the Jews in verse 17. He explains the situation as we, as we read. And then in verse 21, the, 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 the leaders say to him, we, we, we haven't received letters from you. We, we, we haven't heard about your bad reputation. And that makes sense because Paul's boat uh, out of Israel was probably the last boat that left before the sailing season ended. And it was the first boat in which the sail, when the sailing season of the Mediterranean commenced, he would be the first one in. And the, the sequence of events that we find 
in these verses is very similar to Acts 13 when Paul went to the synagogue of the city on Antioch. There was a, an initial exhortation, and in, in, that exhorta- in that exhortation, Paul, he emphasized the resurrection as he does here. He, he, he talked about how the resurrection of Jesus is the, is the linchpin of the promises. All the promises of God in the Old Testament, they come together in the Abrahamic in the, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts 13 real quick. And the same pattern that we see in Acts 20, 28 is, is found in Acts 13, verse 30 to 37. And Paul says in verse 30, but, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who were now his witnesses to the people. We, we, we met Jesus. We met the resurrected Jesus. We shook hands with him. We ate with him. We saw him with our own eyes. Verse 32. And we proclaim to you the, the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. You see the promise to the fathers? The linchpin, the fulfillment happens in the resurrection, as it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and faithful loving kindness of David. So Paul is making a case from scripture that yes, the Abrahamic promise is scriptural, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is also scriptural. That is also from the Old Testament. So he's quoting these, these various Old Testament passages to make the case that, that Paul isn't making it up. He's not just making up the resurrection. He's not just saying, well, it, it never. where did we see this? Well, he says that we see it in various places in the Old Testament. He quotes the, uh, another psalm in verse 35. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. For David, after he... He served the purpose of God, so he's talking about David and how this can't refer to David, it refers to Jesus Christ. And then he ends his exhortation with a call to faith in Christ. There is a, there is a break, there's a break, and then there's a verse 42, uh, uh, there's a, they come to the next Sabbath, and it's at this second meeting when the Jews and the proselytes, they, 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 they start fighting. Uh, verse 44 and verse 45, they come the next Sabbath, They see the crowds, they're filled with jealousy, they're contradicting, and all hell breaks loose. You go back to, go go to Acts 28 and you see the same pattern, the same same sequence. There's this initial initial meeting in verse verse 17, and then verse 22, uh, verse 23, they says, okay, we'll come again and and we'll hear about what you have to say. Verse 23, they came to him, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that God has promised Israel, that kingdom of God comes through Jesus. He was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. You think this sermon is long, just imagine if you were there. It's morning until evening. All day, he's quoting passages that prove that Jesus that would rise again from the dead. And what was the same pattern? Some were persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. And when they disagreed with one another, they began leaving. After Paul spoke in one word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And then Paul talks about the deadness, the deadness of spiritual uh, spirit of, of their spiritual condition. This is the same pattern. In Acts 13, Paul quoted Isaiah 49. Now, 
In the narratives, this is kind of some Bible study tricks, in the narratives of Scripture, when you see something repeated, when, when, when God repeats something that you saw before, God is not being redundant. God is never redundant in Scripture. If you, I'm redundant. If you get to know me, you know, after a few months, I have a bad memory. I'm going to tell the same story you heard before. Then you're like, oh, you, you, you told me this story, right? And there's no reason for my redundancy. But, but God never just repeats himself for no reason. When God repeats himself in narrative portions of Scripture, he has a purpose. Sometimes God repeats something to apply a theme that was initially uh, introduced in the first instance of the text to a new situation in this second instance. For example, when, uh, when, when God confirmed the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he split the animals in two, and when Abraham was uh, sleeping, there was this fiery light that came through the animals, and, and that was how you, you made a deal with, with, you made a covenant or you made a, a pact with, a, with somebody in some kind of arrangement. So here today, we, we sign contracts. I, I agree to pay you $500 a month for this car for 12 months. There, you would cut animals. You would make a deal. And the, the, the cutting of the animals would signify if anybody breaks their, their, their side of the bargain, may they die like these animals. And so what God was saying with respect to the Abrahamic covenant, he was saying, Abraham, Abraham's sleeping. Usually two people walked. But Abraham sleeping, so God walked alone. He, God was saying to Abraham, I will unconditionally keep this promise to you and your people. If I don't, may I be like these animals. And then in, in, in Exodus, you see the light again. You see a, the light in a burning bush. And, and it's, it's being repeated. And, and, and then God says, I am the God of your fathers and Abraham. And what is that, what is that saying? Well, you... Moses is saying, remember Genesis 15? God is going to keep the same promise to Moses that he kept with Abraham. So he's just, the theme of Genesis 15 is now being repeated in the repetition of a bright and fiery light. That's how repetition works. Sometimes, other times when a passage is, is, is repeated, um, the additional new information that the first instance never included is what is being emphasized in the second or third or fourth instance. Go, go to 17 through 20. When Paul says, they examined me and they, that I was innocent, we saw that before in Acts, did we not? Over and over he said that. So that's being repeated. Uh, 21, 23, when Paul, he comes, look at verse 23. He's explaining to them by bearing the witness. We saw that before many times in Acts. It's being repeated. But what haven't we seen before in, in, in this dialogue? We have not seen verse 26 and 27. And that shows us that this is what Luke is trying to emphasize. The spiritual condition of Israel. Because you have a conundrum at the end of Acts. You have a conundrum. If you're a conscientious reader of Acts, you're seeing the gospel going out into the world. People are receiving Christ. People are receiving the Jewish Messiah. They're receiving the King of Israel. But this is the irony. Why does Israel reject their own Messiah? And so Luke and Paul, anticipating this kind of, what is going on here, 
he explains why. He quotes Isaiah. And in Isaiah 6, this is a quote from Isaiah 6, Isaiah was told to go to Israel to preach the gospel, and, and then Isaiah said, okay, I'll go, and then Paul says, but when you go, they will not receive you. They will refuse you. They will reject you because they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually deaf. They've always been this way, and they will always be this way in the future. And so Luke is saying, this is the reason. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. He is perfect. The gospel is beautiful. Everything is wrong with the spiritual condition of Israel. And this was part of the plan. This was always part of the plan, according to Isaiah. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And now we move to our third point, our our third and final point, the unstoppable gospel. Luke writes, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered, unhindered. What is God's final word to us from the book of Acts? Well, it is literally and figuratively the last word of the book, unhindered. Without hindrance, unstoppable. In other words, the gospel is unstoppable. Nothing you can do to stop this message. Nothing you can do to stop this power. The the gospel is an unstoppable word. There is no obstacle. Jewish plots and shipwrecks and poisonous snakes and Roman authorities and prison cells and and chains and kangaroo courts, there is nothing that can hinder the mission of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. They can persecute us. They They can throw us in jail. They can take away everything that we own. But we're going to win. We're not going to lose. We're not going to lose. This is Luke's final word to us. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.9, right before he's executed by Nero. Uh, uh, Luke doesn't tell us what happens uh, to, Acts, to, to, to Paul in Acts. Uh, we assume that he was released from prison. We assume that the Jews were like, we're not going to go up there because Paul's a Roman citizen and we don't have a case and we're afraid of a countercharge, and we assume he was released. We, were, we're, we assume, we, we think he went to Spain, he made it to Spain, and then when he came back to Rome, Nero got even crazier and crazier, threw him in jail and killed him. And so, 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter before he dies. He knows he's, he's about to die. And he's saying his final words to Timothy. And, and this is what he says to his protege. Remember Jesus Christ. risen from the dead of the seed of David according to my gospel. What what about this gospel, Paul? He says, for for which I endure hardship even to to change as a criminal. He says, this gospel that I'm in jail for, that I'm about to die for, yes, Timothy, remember this gospel. Remember these chains. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 2.9, that the word of God has not been changed. I might die. I might die. But the gospel will never die. It will never die. The gospel cannot be stopped. It is an unstoppable gospel being preached by an unstoppable church. So Christian... Hold your head up high. 
stick your chest out a little bit. Walk like you know for sure that you may lose your life, but the gospel will win. Why should we go to Rome with Paul, brothers and sisters? Because only those willing to go to Rome with Paul are given the fullness of the blessing of Christ, true, deep joy. We, we, we considered that earlier. And, and number two, we must be willing to go to Rome with Paul because why wouldn't you want to be a part of a mission that cannot fail? You can't lose. You see, one of the hardest things about taking a big risk is that you don't know how it might turn out, right? There's, there's a fear of failure. And what Luke wants to end this book with is a message for the church. Throughout these 28 chapters in, 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 in Acts, we, we've seen the church grow and spread and, and, and the gospel go to the end of the earth. And Luke says, it didn't do it by chance or luck or good fortune. There was never, ever the risk of failing. Because all of God is behind this mission. Proclaim Christ to the end of the earth. Yeah, you might lose your life for the gospel, but we will not lose the war against evil and sin and death. What's the final word of Acts? Let's, let's go to Rome with Paul and win by losing everything.